Today we're putting blockchain in the spotlight. What is it? We know it's the technology behind Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies, but there's much more to it than that. Apparently, it's going to change the world. But how? And when? Now, I'm not pretending that today's spotlight will answer all the questions, but it'll be a start. I'll be talking to two people. Rob Hansen, who's in charge of the blockchain project at the CSIRO division called Data61, and also to someone who is putting blockchain into practice in a startup business. Mark Tui of TBS Times 3, which is using blockchain to help food exporters stop counterfeiting. First, Rob Hansen, and I asked him to explain simply what blockchain is, if a simple explanation is possible. The challenge is it's not necessarily that simple, but I will gloss over the technology and I'll, I'll give you a very simple uh, description. Essentially, these are a series of blocks of transactions. So there are a series of transactions which occur. They are tied together. There is a bit of technology I'll mention known as a hash. A hash is essentially a digital fingerprint. So all those transactions have a unique fingerprint that is applied to, to that block. And then essentially everyone agrees that that is a true and accurate record of, of those transactions. The fingerprint of that block is then placed onto the next block and is actually incorporated in the fingerprint of that block. And so essentially what we have is mathematically and cryptographically proven that the information in there is, is, is accurate. And so we can rely upon uh, this ledger to, to be an accurate representation of all the transactions which have occurred. How is the proven? It's proven through the use of the hash. And so what happens is the hash is, is essentially like a fingerprint. So if I were to put my fingerprint onto something, you couldn't recreate me from the fingerprint. But in a perfect world, only I would leave that fingerprint in the digital world. That is true. And so only that lot of information will leave that particular fingerprint. And so what happens is those transactions, which you can see, are represented by that hash which is trivial to work out. You can look at it and go, yes, that hash matches that information. Getting the hash is the challenging bit in the way that Bitcoin works. And I was hoping not to go there straight away, but the, with the miners is the miners have a challenge to put that hash together. And that's where that, that work comes in. Blockchain doesn't only work with Bitcoin. Correct. Blockchain is, I guess, the way you're describing it, as a chain of blocks, and the blocks can, are, mm -hmm. are transactional information, right? Correct. And they are linked together by what you call a hash. Is that is that a simple simple way to put it? That's a very simple way. That works. That's good. Now, where do these blocks and the chain of blocks reside? Ah, well, so in a public or distributed ledger system, everyone gets it, and so that would what we refer to as a permissionless system and so everybody can read from it and everyone can write to it and everyone has a copy of it that is of course the the bitcoin system and the ethereum system where um, everyone can can have a copy what we're looking at now is a translation of this technology into business applications and in those situations we're looking at permissioned blockchains so not necessarily everybody can have access to them and uh, certainly not everybody can can read from them so it's uh that the challenge therein is the fact that we need to create a new trust model um 
the way that, that say, in Bitcoin works, which was the original version of, of blockchain, was that the way that the maths worked out was that you can give all of these uh, ledgers to everyone and you don't have to trust them, but we can trust the process and the process uh, works really well. And that works because the asset is dematerialized because we're dealing with a digital asset which is only ever transacted within that given ledger. Once we start to deal with situations where we're no longer dealing with just a digital asset, but we're actually talking about real-world things as well, whether that's provenance for, for tracking an item like food, or that's dealing with someone adding information in, then we, we trust that that information is correct. We now need to think about how we can build a, that trust model so everyone agrees that what's written into the ledger is, is true and accurate. I've heard it said that the blockchain is like another internet in some way. Firstly, is that a good way to look at it? And perhaps you could use that analogy and that way of looking at it to explain it to us a bit more. We are actually saying, and I believe many other people are saying too, that it's kind of like the 90s with the internet. There's a lot of innovation in this space and things are coming out all the time. So I touched briefly upon the proof of work concept with the miners uh, without going into too much detail there. There are certainly many more different types of ways that uh, the way that these systems are processed are, are coming on board and they are changing, radically changing the business model behind how that blockchain would work. So without going into too much detail in some of these mining situations, what happens is uh, people are rewarded with coin, with value, with, with virtual currency for putting all that processing power and, and all that electricity into to doing that work. And that's how they keep that thing rolling. There, there are new systems coming out where the people involved in the network can achieve that outcome without that processing overhead. And so there's the processing power required to actually put the ledger together is, is quite trivial. So we're seeing radical change in the space. So I would agree that's very much like the internet. The other thing that it does is, um, to go back to the internet analogy, is the internet was basically conceived because of the threats in the Cold War. So if a nuclear bomb went off and, and took out a region of America, they wanted a, a computer network that could route around that damage and continue to provide communications. So that was a trusted network. And in that space, what they were really concerned about was availability and being able to get information around the place. As the number of users, the scope of use of the internet increased, we started to put less and less trusted people on until now we have pretty much everyone on the internet and you don't really trust anyone. So information integrity was not baked into the system. What blockchain is all about is about integrity in information. And so now having that capability in information systems, that is quite novel and is producing a lot of possibility and potential out there that previously we didn't have access to. To further that analogy, I've heard it said that you know the internet is a kind of a communications network. Well, blockchain is a value network. It enables not just transformation, transferring of information, but the transferring of value. Is that, is that accurate? That's correct, because what we can do is we can trust the information that's, that's being transferred. So the main challenge that occurred that Bitcoin solved was the double spend problem. So there have been virtual currencies around for some time, but there were issues with the fact that the, the value that was, was um, exchanged was a set of zeros and ones. And the problem with a lot of information systems is that it's very easy to falsify or modify this information. So if I wanted to give 
you some value, so to give you a coin, for example, that's a series of zeros and ones that I transfer to you, but what's to stop me copying those zeros and ones, giving them to someone else as well? So what it gave us in, in Bitcoin was the ability to look across the ledger to see that I've actually given Alan that coin already, so Rob can't give that coin to someone else. So we're ha- able to have that, that global consistency in the data set, and that's where the value comes in. So we're able to, to trust the, the transaction that, that took place. Looking back to the 90s, the internet, as you say, was kind of early days. Lots of stuff was going on then and it's gone on since. But as you also say, the internet has become part of everyday life of everybody all the time. So if this is now the 90s for blockchain, do you think that in 20, 30 years time, blockchain will be a part of everybody's everyday life all the time? Two things to to answer there straight away. The first is it'll probably disappear from front of mind's sooner rather than later. So this is probably a, a back office technology that will, once the hype starts to settle down, will be something that will be considered as part of the IT infrastructure. And now there is a challenge there in that because of this information integrity, because of the fact that we lock something into a, into a blockchain and we can't change it, that it's stuck there in that chain, we can, we can update the transactions that come afterwards. There are policy issues, there are legal issues, there are ethical issues that need to be considered in the application of information systems that previously wouldn't be. So if a court of law said, reverse that as if it never happened, which they do in certain transactions, you go to the database and you change it. With a distributed ledger technology, or like a blockchain, if that's written into that blockchain and it's in the wild, it's gone and you can't really um, do that. So Whilst it might enter into the background, people still need to consider the deeper uh, ramifications of this technology in terms of people and process as well. The other thing is into the future, if you're going to ask me, will it become part of everything? Yes, if it can create that information integrity that we're looking for, that is that is fantastic. But another space that I think that it might really start to um, work with and blockchain or DLT is not a silver bullet and it doesn't work by itself. It works within an ecosystem of both other technologies, whether that be user interfaces or databases or or what have you, and then within processes and people as well. If we draw, for example, the Internet of Things into this, the OECD in, in 2015 labeled the Internet of Things as actually the Internet of Trust. And they said, we have all these devices out there. We can start to have much more assurance in our business uh, transactions because we all have visibility as to what happened. So that global consistency that I spoke about before. So yes, you sent your, your bale of wool over into the ship. Everyone saw that it got into the, the cargo container because all the people involved in the transaction um, have access to the sensors and they can see who had access to the container and they can see where it went to and they can check the humidity and whatever else they need to check to, to see that, yes, it safely made it on its way and then they can agree on the value of, of its uh, final destination. So that is fantastic. The challenge is we need to trust those devices. And so I believe that uh, there's potential for blockchain technology to be used to help with the integrity of the information that manages the IoT devices, such as their configuration, such as their security patches, um, such as the data that comes off the sensors and then storing them into an evidentiary audit log, essentially, into a ledger that we can all refer to and agree that it is true and accurate. And that might be very transformational in of itself. My understanding was that the blockchain would be able to be used as sort of a peer-to-peer transactional technology that would, it would in fact be a vehicle for disintermediation of all sorts of organisations. Is that right? And if so, that would seem to me that it would become part of everyday life for, for ordinary people. 
there are certainly a couple of points around that. Uh, one is, yes, the Bitcoin example, and everyone goes back to the original version of the innovation. It removed intermediaries. So if I wanted to re- remit money overseas, that might be using a bank here and a bank over there and other intermediaries in between. It just goes straight from, from me to you. And so that that's all good. The challenge there is we have cut out the institutions in the centre. And so whilst we may not be paying for those institutions, we also don't receive the benefits of those institutions. So if I was to have some fraud committed against me or there was a cyber attack and I was to lose my wallet and and all my coins inside of it, um, I don't have a recourse from that point forward. So whereas if I had a a transaction through a bank and there was fraud, I could go to the the bank and and get that back as well. The same type of thing is happening with lots of digital disruptors out there. So for example, with with Uber at the moment, my understanding is there is not workers' compensation being paid for the the drivers and um, there's not superannuation being paid for them as well. So yes, Uber is cheaper, but we're not paying those social benefits, which um, the, the drivers could otherwise uh, rely upon. So there's a hollowing out of the system there. So it needs to be considered how you're going to do that. Yes, there certainly are cases where you can reduce the number of people involved in, in the transaction and, and make it better. But there are many examples out there as well where the number of actors involved in the transaction remain the same. But what's increased is the transparency and accountability, and what we're seeing is greater efficiency. Land titles is a perfect example in this in this space. Uh, Norway, in particular, uh, Georgia, uh, there's some uh, countries in Africa as well, are all putting these in place. They're not removing the number of people involved, but everyone can see at what stage it's up to. It's great um, in places like Norway where there's high uh, trust in the institutions, but in some of the, the countries in Africa where this is occurring, they're putting it in place because they don't trust the institutions as much, and so they're using the, the system to build that trust up. So they're not actually reducing the number of actors, but they're increasing the the, the trust that, that's happening. So disintermediation is certainly one aspect that blockchain can be used for, but the anti-fraud mechanisms, the transparency and accountability in that audit log is certainly other areas that produce value as well. What exactly is Data61 working on in relation to blockchain? What are you doing? <laughs> uh, so we do a lot of things. What we did was we re- recently, about a month ago, released two reports. Uh, mine, which I was the lead author on, was called Distributed Ledgers, and we looked at the technology now, and the idea was to to talk about this technology, its pros and cons, but you don't need to be technical to read these reports. It's built so anybody can read it. And we re- really, we were looking at the policy implications and aspects of the technology. And then we said, here are some scenarios, some what-ifs about how it could be used, and then talking about how it might work and how it might not work. And the idea is to provoke conversation and to look at and explore some of those implications in more detail. The other report was looking at use cases in the here and now and going, well, here's the current state of the technology. Here's what you could use it for. And then doing some assessments about um, would that be you know, more expensive or, or cheaper or, or would that be more efficient or less efficient? And what are the pros and cons and the risks and opportunities in, in that space? So we did that work. We're now doing a, a, some other work around research in this space. One of the areas that has got Data61's attention and, and Data61 is, is you know, about 1,400 people and we sit within CSIRO, which is about 5,500. As CSIRO, we're looking at potential uses such as food provenance. So we're looking at can it help Australia to, when it's marketing its, its products overseas, demonstrate that, yes, this came through the correct supply chain, so it's legitimate when it gets over there, so it's protecting brand Australia, as it were. So provenance is, is a very interesting space that uh, we're looking at, and there's many areas inside of CSIRO which are a part of that conversation and that research. There's certainly other areas that are of great interest to us as well at various stages. One of the areas of interest to us is um, intellectual property. So intellectual property is an area which appears to be a, a larger part of our emerging um, economy. 
and being able to protect that and to um, ensure that royalties go to who should be receiving them is, is something which is of interest to us as well. You were also looking, I think, at government services, voting, in fact, as well as health records and, of course, banking, which everybody's been talking about. But you, you seem to have been looking at very kind of wide applications of blockchain. The key here is to look at the problem and to see what types of technologies can address the problem rather than looking at um, a solution such as blockchain and then uh, trying to shoehorn it into fixing the problem. So we're we're very cognizant of that and um, that's certainly not the approach that we take. So we're having lots of conversations at the moment about what are the really useful use cases here? Does it fit in and what does it fit in in concert with? And so it's often the fact that particularly with emerging technologies and things which are under a lot of research and development, but it's not just that thing, it's that thing plus a few other things that we need to look at. So we're certainly having a lot of conversations around the technology at the moment, but not to say this is the technology, let's use it, but you know, what value can it provide? Because as I think I mentioned before, it's not necessarily about producing 100% trust, it's about increasing the, the trust and confidence in the transactions which are occurring now. The press release from the CSIRO on this stuff quoted the Treasurer, Scott Morrison, as saying, that you guys would help Australia build on its existing position as a leader in developing blockchain technology. I didn't realise we had that leadership position. Is that right? One of the spaces which is very high profile is the ASX. So the ASX, with the work that they're doing, with their um, replacing their legacy system, is being touted in many places around the world as being a world leader. So um, we certainly have that, and there's a very positive regulatory environment inside of Australia. So... A lot of the regulators are very keen to see how can we facilitate this, what can we do to engage in this space, which is something that is not necessarily prevalent in many other parts of the world. So the fact that we have a few high-profile cases, we have um, some very interesting and very worthwhile startups that have, have really embraced this technology and putting in, in some cases they are disintermediators, they are quite disruptive business models. It means that there are certainly some areas we can point to and say that we are, if not world leaders, that we are certainly um, at, the, uh, at the front of the pack. And are there any applications of blockchain you think that Australia can really maintain some leadership in? Interesting question. I was I was going to leap for, and I think it will, AgriDigital. So AgriDigital used to be known as Full Profile. And what they did was they came in and they put a system that said that the middleman can't take the wheat from the farmer until they've paid for it. And then the middleman can take it off and, and get the bank to, to cover them and it can go off into the supply chain. Because what would happen previously was if there would sometimes be defaults and what would happen would be the, the farmer would not only lose their money because the middleman wouldn't pay them and that could be because the middleman didn't have enough money or because the bank said that they weren't going to pay or whatever it was. But also what would happen would be their wheat would get lost because it would be commingled and they couldn't get it back. And so not only were we seeing a financial impact to that industry, we were also seeing a social impact to that industry as well. And there were lots of suicides and other issues there too. So what AgriDigital did was they came in and they put a blockchain system that basically says it acts almost like an escrow and it, and it says, okay, yes, we all agree that this amount of grain was transferred. It was at this quality and they take the measurements out of the, the sensors and then transfer of title only occurs if there's um, money available to be paid from the middleman to the farmer. So that type of system, it's not necessarily a disintermediator, 
but um, what it does is it provides a lot of certainty to to the transaction. So there was actually a lot of social and, and public good that came out of, of that particular thing, as well as, as providing the financial benefits. That type of arrangement where we put systems that safeguard people and their transactions in place is really something which I think is, is very beneficial. Yeah, and that's very interesting to hear about what you might call a more mundane use of blockchain. Mm, yeah, I agree. It's been great talking to you, Rob. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, sir. Mark Tui is a lawyer whose firm was the first to accept bitcoins as payment. Now he's become a blockchain entrepreneur. And I started by asking him the meaning of the company's name, TBS times three. It comes back to the real core of the product and that is that we say we've got three layers of protection and there's a lot of people working in this area trying to secure product and they a lot of them put labels on a product or they have a smartphone app that reads the identity of the product on the other end well that's two layers but we've really we're really about the three layers and that third layer is the magic. So the first layer we have is we put a very strong encryption on the particular item. So every particular item has an identity, whether it's a packet or a a bottle or a box. And then we track it. The second layer is we track it all the way through the supply chain from trucking company to port to ship and down through the chain. Some of these chains can have 20 to 30 different, we call them baton changes, as the product moves along from one participant in the supply chain to the next. We're mostly talking about food products, is that right? It can be anything, food, pharmaceuticals, any product that someone wants to secure and make sure that it's, we're tracking things from assembly line right through to store shelf. So anywhere where that makes a difference, we can supply this technology. Are you defending it from theft or counterfeiting? Uh, both, actually. The third layer is, it answers that question quite well, and that is that there's a, f- a feature in blockchain which is called no double spend, and that's why we use a blockchain. And essentially that means you have a register, and once the item has been sold, it can't be resold again. And why that matters is that's the exact opposite of what happens when you have a counterfeiter because they take one genuine item and if you give that item an ID, they'll make 10,000 copies, 100,000 copies of that genuine item. Well, they can make their copies, but if they can only sell that identity once, then all the copies have no commercial value to anyone who takes the effort to check whether that identity is genuine or not or whether that identity has been spent. So this is really why we're talking to you, Mark, is because of your use of blockchain to secure, you know, and to be a part of the supply chain of, of actual goods. Now, tell us, what made you think of using blockchain in that way? I've been involved in blockchain for a long time. I think we were the first law firm and lawyers to accept payments in uh, Bitcoin. And the reason I was so interested in Bitcoin, and I still lecture on the subject of digital currency, is that... I really understood the importance of the technology behind it and it was opening up some really interesting concepts such as the auditability 
the fact that you can check, anyone can check the records and make sure the data is correct, the fact that the data can't be changed. There's no single point of entry for someone to go in and change things. So I started working on that area, and then I I thought there's got to be a really good application of this that just succinctly captures all the best features, and I'd like to find a problem that fixes it. And I, I was reading, and I came across a statistic that just flabbergasted me, and that was that Interpol says a million people a year die from fake pharmaceuticals. And if you told me it was five or 10,000 people, I would have thought that was a huge figure. But it's, there is such a black market in goods, and we've had it here in Australia. There was recently the incident at the Sydney Children's Hospital where some babies were nearly given uh, fake medication. The pharmacist, an alert pharmacist, was grinding it up and noticed that the the powder didn't seem right, and they checked it, and there was no active ingredients. We've had the, the Valium recall just recently. There was involved in that. There were some fake statins, and there was a third type of tablet, which I don't know enough about pharmacology to know what that one was for, but it's everywhere, and if it's killing a million people elsewhere, then we're naive to think that it may not be a significant problem here in Australia. But my concern is that we don't check no one, it doesn't show up in an autopsy if someone's just been given a fake pill. Um, you know, it's just they've they're obviously got a heart problem. They've been on heart tablets for years. They get a, a box that's got no active ingredients in it and it all comes to an end. And no one would be thinking to check. You just say, oh, his, his heart finally gave out. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that really does worry me. So I, I looked at that and I thought, well, that's a very good problem to start fixing. And the one that really got me was when I read that cancer patients in the U.S. hospitals in certain instances have been given fake chemo. And I just think that's just diabolical that we live in a world where people would make fake chemo and rob people of their last chance at life. So how does blockchain solve that? It comes back to that turning the those three layers, and that's why they're so important. We can take an identity, put it on each packet of pharmaceuticals, and that packet is unique. Then we can trace that all the way through the supply chain, and then that packet can only ever be sold once. So if someone wants to counterfeit it, intercepts the shipment, does something, first of all, that should be detected in our, our tracking of the entire shipment all the way through. We're using machine learning to make sure that we try and detect anomalies and we can find that it doesn't make sense that that shipment, the rest of that shipment is being sold in this suburb, but this packet's being offered for sale somewhere else. Maybe this is not right and we can report back to the companies and say, we think you may have a problem with that shipment and we can feed them back uh, useful intelligence that can help them plug these holes and find where the gaps are. Isn't the problem with um, fake products like that that somebody doesn't copy them, they just come up with a new product that looks the same? From my discussions with like the head of fraud detection for one of the largest drug companies in the world, the, the problem is that the, the crooks have so much money that they can throw at this that if they come up with a new hologram or a new feature, someone just replicates it within a matter of a very short time and has all the same printing technologies, all the same 
cutting-edge technologies. That's why this identity system is a new approach, and it just can't be faked. It can't be broken. The technology we're using is the same technology that powers the Bitcoin system. And the Bitcoin system itself is worth about $40 billion now. It's been out in the wild for about eight years, and there's been, I'd imagine, countless attacks on it. One business I'm involved in, a Bitcoin business, can have four or 500 attacks a day. The system itself has not been broken in eight years. There's been problems with some crooks that operated within the Bitcoin industry, but the system itself the technology behind it has withstood eight years of attacks. Part of what interests me about your business, Mark, is that it's been assumed that blockchain was fundamentally a fintech operation, that it was all about banking and that it was obviously the, the technology behind Bitcoin, but that blockchain would be used only really in other forms of financial services. In fact, you're showing that it's more broad than that. Can you give us a bit of a sense of how broad do you think the applications of blockchain could end up being? Blockchain, outside of the things that we're doing, is identity is one of the most interesting things. There's a huge percentage of the world's population. It's a few billion people that actually don't have identities. They can't open a bank account. They can't get credit. You've got other problems where a lot of people in the third world don't have land registries. That they can, they've, they've got family assets. They've had land passed down to them but they can't use it in any commercial setting because no one can identify clearly who owns what. In the local area, they may say it runs from that tree over to that rock, etc. but you need to systematize these things. And it's a little bit like the phone uh, in the, the third world 20 years ago. There was a huge problem because no one could afford the copper to get all the phone lines out into the rural areas, and they just didn't have a phone system. Mobile technologies come along, and now some of those countries, well, regrettably, have systems that are better or equal to what we have in Australia, which is a whole different story. But the same thing can happen here with administrative systems. If blockchain is deployed in the third world, people can have identities. They can have a birth, death, and marriage registry that's ultra-modern. They can have an asset registry that's, that's just as good as anywhere in the world. In fact, it probably will be better than some of the stuff we have in the uh, developed countries because we've got legacy systems and there's all sorts of reasons why it's awkward to change. They can come in afresh and start with the latest and best technology. Blockchain's like another internet, isn't it? Some say that, and there's every potential for that. And that really raises a very a thing I'm very passionate about, Alan. So I'm glad you asked that because if it is the next internet and it's going to change everything as much as the internet did, then the future profits or the future businesses in Australia are going to depend on this very heavily. And yet Australia is so, so far behind in investment in Bitcoin. And there's data from just as recently as a year ago to show that countries like Barbados, Panama, Nicaragua, Kenya are investing more in blockchain than Australia is. So we really need to shift the debate in Australia about this technology 
and seize the opportunity while there still is an opportunity. Because if we don't do that, in a couple of years' time, we'll all be using foreign blockchain businesses to store some of our most important data. I don't want Australian health records on foreign systems. I don't think it's good for us to have our share market on a foreign system or our any of our financial systems. And the difference is, sure, we've had large multinational software companies in the past that have been providing these services, but blockchain is an enormous opportunity because it decentralizes things and spreads the risk out. That's a core to the technology. But at the same time, it's also a joining together of systems. At the moment, you have all that data in different silos. When you put it into one large system, it's also a centralization. As much as we're taking, we're decentralizing the point of attack, we're also bringing all these systems into one system. That produces a vulnerability that is a, a huge security risk if we don't handle it properly. And we need, as a nation, to be taking very serious understanding of this technology, making sure we invest in it, making sure we own it, and making sure we secure it. You seem to be conflating blockchain and Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies in general, but they're quite separate, aren't they? Their technology is exactly the same. It's just a question of how you use it. That's right. I suppose I'm, I'm asking you whether you think blockchain is going to, in a sense, change the world, whatever happens to the cryptocurrencies. Blockchain is definitely going to have an impact. How big it will have will be vary from country to country. You have places like Kuwait and Dubai. Dubai wants to have their entire government system on blockchain by 2020. That's a state of government aim. What does that mean? What does that mean, to have your government system on blockchain? What does that actually mean? Well, again, coming back to your central registries, anything that's a registry, you can use a blockchain for it. Births, deaths, marriages, assets, health records, pharmaceutical prescriptions. It really comes down to your supply chains. It comes down to your imagination. A bit like if we go back to your question about the internet. When the internet first started, I remember someone telling me they love the whole idea of this new thing they joined where they could search the records at the library uh, from their house. And that was, we looked at the person and said, well, why do you want to do that? Why don't you hop in your car and drive down to the library? But that was about as far as our perception of where this thing could go. And of course, we do everything online now, from watching TV to booking travel uh, to communicating with each other. None of us can perceive exactly how far blockchain will extend as a technology. It's really about that spreading out the risk so there's no central point of attack. And that that can be used in all sorts of ways. If you come back to the other things of being able to be audited at all times by anyone, that has all sorts of uses. And of course, the fact that it can't be changed when you want something that's rock solid, reliable and verified by lots and lots of people, then this is a great system. It doesn't work for everything. Sounds like we should have our own identities on blockchain. Yes. <laughs> There's a, you know, we've already can see the problems we've had with the Medicare cards recently. The ability to cross-match things and weed out anomalies and the way for them to be checked. And there can be layers of privacy. It's not that everything on the system is known to everyone. You can have 
reasons why people can have data in certain circumstances uh, for certain time periods. You can put limits on those things. So as much as we talk about everyone can see it, there's also, that is possible, but it's also to, there's ways to mask the data so it's only accessible in accordance with certain criteria. We'll have to leave it there, Mark. It's been great talking to you, though. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Alan. Thank you for the time. I've been talking to Rob Hansen, who's in charge of the blockchain project at the CSIRO division called Data61, and also to Mark Tui, founder of TBS Times 3.